chapter 14, verse 15. We'll read through verse 24. There's a guy who speaks up and talks about uh, eating in the kingdom of God. Notice, when verse 15, When one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that, that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he said unto him, A certain man made a great supper and bade many and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must must needs go and see it. I pray thee have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor and the maimed, and the halt, and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. My mom there was a time, a short time when I was younger, my mom had this like dinner bell thing. It was like a triangular thing of iron. And she went ding, 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 you know. And she did that a couple times when I was younger when we lived in East Mesa. I played outside a lot. And then when we lived over here at Val Vista and Southern, she did that a few times because I'm out, you know, three or four houses away. She could whistle and pierce your eardrum if you're standing next to her, that whistle. I think it's still ringing. <laughs> or she could just, you know, ding, 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 ding. And, and I'm weird. I kind of liked it. That's pretty cool. I like that. Kind of reminds me of being in the Westerns. All right, the cowboy's coming in for dinner then. No. But mom would call us in, you know, call us in to eat, particularly me. My brothers were usually close by. Well, here's a, here's a story again. So here, verse 15. First thing we want to do, first part of our time, just what is, let's get a picture of this. We're going to see kind of the five parallels of what this is about. And then we're going to focus on the last thing about compelling. And we're just going to make one point for that tonight. Okay. First part is this story. It's about eating. Jesus is sitting there eating. Notice verse 15. When one of them that sat at meat heard, heard these things, he said unto him, blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. So, you know, they're sitting around and, 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 and some of these guys, you know, they're, they're theologically minded and they're, and Jesus talked about, you know, inviting people over that can't pay you back and stuff like that. And, and then he goes, you know, blessed is the guy that finally gets to eat with God in the kingdom, you know, the kingdom of God. And Jesus replies to him that it is, it, it, the idea is, yes, it's true. It's blessed to, to be able to eat in the kingdom. Isn't that neat? We're going to be able to eat. Wow. Some of us are like, finally, heaven is heaven to me. I'll be able to eat in God's kingdom and you know, the marriage supper of the land, all that. So, so it's true. Yeah, there's some, some form of eating in the next, in heaven, and certainly in the kingdom. Okay. Uh, I don't know what it's all like, but it's there. 
Um, so Jesus replies to that, and his reply is basically like, not everybody's going to be there to be able to eat because people are refu- will refuse to even come to the supper that he's calling you to right now. So he tells this parable. And the parable, the picture, first of all, of the supper, and the supper is going to represent the Savior. So he says, a certain man made, what does this verse first say? Uh, a great supper and bade many. Certain man made a great supper and bade many. He invited many. So the man, this man here is God. And the supper is basically the provision, the salvation, everything you have in Jesus. He's that supper. He's that feast. He's all that. He's, he's all the, the gift of God that we have. So the man made this supper and he's telling the story. And, and he bade many. He invited many to come to look at it's all provided it's free I, and and it says when all things were now ready all right now go tell them that's what it's like when you you know you do a wedding or this thing yesterday first you get it all ready and then you're like all right it's ready when i come um sometimes uh you know you you want to sometimes i told my wife this the other day i'm like and, and it's, i battle sometimes in the week the balance of my time do i spend more time inviting people to church or do i spend more time getting the church ready to invite them to there's still a cloud. That's not a cloud. I still need a teacher there, and that's not in order. I can spend all my time just getting all the order. Or sometimes I can spend all my time inviting, but I have to work on both ends. Get, we got to have things cleaned and, and stuff like that. But, but I still got to invite somebody here, otherwise we'll have something clean, and nobody's going to come to it. But at the same time, I can invite all week and knock doors, and somebody come here to a dirty church, and that teacher's not ready, and this person's late, and I didn't know about it, and I forgot to deal with that person. I have to work on both ends constantly. And so here this man, he made it all ready. He actually already had invitations out to a certain number of people. Had invitations out. Made the big supper, and then he tells the servants, go tell the ones who were already invited. All right, it's time. Show up. Now, the supper... The point is, the supper is Jesus Christ. He's the provision for us. And the fact is, in the greater story, everybody's invited to him. You're going to see that. But who are the first ones that were invited to him? The Jews. So the second thing is, is these initial invitees are his own. His own. He came unto his own. To the lost sheep of Israel. He came to Israel. To the Jew first. And so... They already knew Messiah's coming. They had the invitation from the prophets. Yeah, Messiah's coming. Um, the Prince of Peace. And we'll let you know when he's here. <laughs> and Jesus showed up. And now John the Baptist is saying it. The disciples are saying it. And they're inviting all, just like the story says, go tell my people, that, go tell the men that were invited, come to the supper. And so the, the, the servants go out and they tell, hey, come, it's all right. You got the invitation. Yeah, now come over here. It's already great supper, a great supper. Now that sounds good right there. That's like saying this is, you know, with the, the, the golden corral, probably times 10. And usually they stay all day on stuff like that. That sounds good, doesn't it, kids? Wouldn't you like to just hang out at Golden Corral all day? With a Game Boy, of course, you know. And every now and then go into that chocolate fountain, ah, if they still have it, you know. I mean, this is a big feast. You know, name a, a kosher. Probably no lobster and pork, but, you know, hey, I'm sure you got filet mignon probably and stuff like that. Anyways, and so this is a big feast. And so he invites them and he says, all right, come on. And there's like three types of excuses. And the whole purpose of the excuse is pathetic. 
even humorous. And so, one guy, what's the first excuse? Um, and they, everybody would have laughed. If you think about it, you'll laugh. The first said, they all with one consent began to make excuse, verse 18. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. One of you kids, what's wrong with that excuse? So the guy comes and says, hey, the big feast is ready. Why don't you come? He goes, oh, I bought some land and I, I didn't get to go see it yet. Can I be excused to go see the land I bought? What's the problem with that, Seamus? Yes. So either this guy's really dumb or he's lying. It's one of, I mean, I don't know what else it could be. He's lying. He just didn't really want to go. Or he's really not smart. Uh, I bought a piece of land and I got to go see it. Boy, that's not, and here, now we can get a little side, you know, business advice. Don't buy land without seeing it. It's in Jesus's parable as a side note. Okay. So he says that. And then the other one, the second excuse is what? Oh, verse 19, it's similar. I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to prove them. I pray they have me excused. I can't remember off the top of my head. A yoke of oxen, I'm assuming, is two. Anybody's got I'm thinking it'd be two because you pull a yoke. So that'd be 10. My assumption there is 10. We could clarify that later. But I bought 10 oxen. It's five yoke, so they can yoke up together. And by the way, that's like having a pickup truck. You get an oxen. Man, plowing and carrying stuff. That's a big deal to buy that. And he says, I bought five yoke of them. And I go to prove them. That means I haven't tested. I bought them already, put my money out there, took them, maybe took them home. And I want to see how they drive. I already bought them. I haven't seen how they plow. I haven't seen if one's stubborn and kicks. And You haven't proved them? How many of us, I mean, unless it's brand new, how many of us have bought a car without test driving it? Oh, John, we test drove it. We test drove it. Oh, that technically you're right then. He didn't test drive it. He watched me. All right, maybe some, you know. You might, I know sometimes you can buy a brand new car, maybe not have test drove it. Okay, but it's just not common. <laughs> you need to test drive it. These, this guy's like, hey, I got all these. Yeah, I, I, I didn't test drive them. I got to go test drive them. That is a bad excuse. Again, either you're lying or you really need some business advice. And then this other one's funny too. The third type of excuse he, gets, he says, hey, come, all things are now ready. The feast is ready. You're invited. I married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Now, I got to think through this. Hmm. I didn't say that. Jesus said that. That's funny. I married a wife. I can't come. Now, let's think through this. Okay, is he lying? He could be lying because he's trying to get out of going to a feast. Uh, whatever. Or he's dumb. Or his wife's really tough. I married a wife, I can't come. Now think of, okay, now wait a minute, ladies. Most of us that have wives, they'd be like, a feast? Yeah, I'd like to go too. Come on, most ladies would like to go with their husband to a great supper. Unless he forgot to give her the invitation. And she went, you didn't tell me or something, you know, like that. I didn't have enough time to get my thing and a new hat to take there, like the, the ladies' tea or something, you know, I don't know. But it, either way, it's a bad excuse, isn't it? Uh, that even, especially in their society, very, it would have been like, no, she is coming. <laughs> it's not a question. She's coming. 
And, but he says, no, I can't go because my wife. Yeah, all right. So the whole point there, so the supper represents the Savior. The invitees represent the Jews who were told, here's Jesus. And they have, it's inexcusable why they didn't believe on him. It's inexcusable why they won't go to this supper. So also there's people besides Jews, even today there's people that have sorry excuses, pathetic excuses why they won't believe the gospel. It's free. Believing on Jesus Christ, it's already paid for. The feast is paid for. Just come and eat the bread of life, the water of life, the God's feast to you. That's all free. Whatever your excuse is, is not good. So it represents Jews who refused in this first century to go to him. And it represents today people who eh, have excuses that are pathetic for not believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. But then we move along here. And the servants, we're focused a little bit on the servants here. So the servants come back, verse 21, and showed unto his Lord these things. Then the master of the house was angry there. He said to the servant, I guess servant in this case, go out quickly. They're not accepting this. Quick, get quick. This is all the food's ready. It's hot. The cold stuff's cold. The hot stuff's hot. Quickly go right here. And this is the city. This is where they're at. Into the streets the lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. Everybody's handicapped. All right, we better get some uh, handicap ramps on the chariots and stuff like that. Then get go out there and get them in there. Every, every sort, in other words, just any, even the worst, the least mobile people, get them. All right, you're, come on, let's get you in here. All right, let's get, you're blind. Nope, you're going to walk with this guy right here. And then, uh, you know, you're maimed. You only have one leg or whatever. Bring them in. And, and they do it. It says, verse, uh, <laughs> verse 22, the Lord said, Lord, it is, the servant said, Lord, back to the, this man, it is done as thou hast commanded, yet there's room. We've gotten even what most people would overlook. We got them here to this fantastic feast. We got them here. Look at the table. We even got a handicapped seating over here and there. And there's a guy next to the blind man. Make sure he doesn't try to drink the gravy instead of the juice. I mean, we got this all set. They're all right here. And, um, and so the Lord said, all right, then we're not done. There's room. Verse 22, he says, and yet there's room. The servant says, there's room. So the Lord says to the servant, verse 23, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. So highways, this is my understanding. So it sounded like the immediate city was combed over for even the overlooked ones or what people wouldn't want normally to come. But he says, get out there, go way out in the highways. So you're getting outside of the city and hedges. That would be some of the hedges could be wild hedges where there's people hanging out in there or borders of properties of rural properties. Go, go out there, way over that hedge. Go to the other border of that property, over to that hedge. Go out, keep going down the highway. People on the highways, by the highways, and compel them. That would mean they'd have to come a distance. To come in, I want my... What is the language here? I want my house full, that my house may be filled, verse 23. So that is representing... Let's go back to the servant here who probably had servants under him, they are God's people. In the first century, it would have been the prophets and disciples compelling 
And the, the Jews said no, so they compelled Gentiles and all of every sort of people, every sort of person, what? To come to God's salvation and consequently to the church, the local church, and be part of that visible assembly. That represents us, the Lord. What does God say now to us today, including that first century church? We are now the ones inviting. We are, and God says, I want people that everybody else overlooks. Get them in here. They're overlooked because of color, because of smell, because of mobility or lack of mobility, because of language, because of uh, racial shunning. Go get them. Bring them here at my supper with everybody else. Well, we got them. Okay, then go out further. Highways, further away, and hedges, rural areas, and compel them to come in. I want my house full, he says. I want my house full. The idea, the concept of a full house. Now, when we fill this house, I know that's, in a sense, to a degree, pleasing to the Lord. He wants people, in as much as it's more people under the sound of the word, but ultimately, the house here is being housed with Jesus, being saved. That's really the ultimate house is heaven, eternal life. God wants, I see the heart of God. He wants it full. He wants a lot of people saved, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance then to the knowledge of the truth. So the servants, the supper is the Savior. The invitees were, the, were those Jews initially invited the servant and servants are us, God's people, and then all the, all, the rest of the people besides them represent the world. These other maimed and blind and then out in the highways and hedges that represents the whole world. God's interested in Eskimos and business, Eskimos in Alaska and uh, businessmen in in uh, New York City, and a guy with a bone his nose somewhere in Africa. In as much as he's also interested in a you know a a scholar, self righteous scholar at Cambridge, he's interested in all sorts, all of them, every sort, compel them. And in this case, it seems like it probably got a little lopsided, of as Paul told about in 1 Corinthians 1, not many wise, not many rich and you know of the world, but the foolish things got invited. But the man here is what I want you to see. Again, how does this begin? Verse 16, a certain man made a great supper. We see the heart of that man. This, is, this man is God. That man's heart already had people invited ahead of time, well, well uh, notified, and they said no, inexcusably. So he goes in two phases to surge, get the maimed and the blind, and then go get more. You see, the heart of this man is big and, and compassionate and generous. I want people to benefit from this supper, even if it's not the original ones who had a lot of opportunity to, I want even the overlooked ones to benefit from this great supper. Even if we have to travel further, I want them to benefit from this supper. And Jesus is that supper. And that's how we see God's heart. God wants every sort of person to benefit from the feast that there is in having a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. I believe that's what it's saying. 
Verse 24, he ends, none of those men that which were bidden shall taste of my supper. Now, I think that's very, that's a Jewish flavored rebuke right there. Jesus is sitting right now in this, as he's telling the story with a bunch of Jewish men eating with him. And he's basically saying, he's basically saying a, a lot of you guys, because not many in this day, Jews believed. In the long run, it's been Gentiles. He's saying, yeah, you're having supper here with me. And you made this comment about it's a blessed thing to eat in the kingdom of God. But he's basically saying, you're not going to even have it. Because you're saying no to the supper that's right in front of you, embodied. And so he's showing it. We see it. We basically see the church age right here in this passage. The word, our, our focus is the word compel. We'll take one point tonight and we'll pick up the rest next week. Compel. I like that word. This, this to me, this passage, I don't know whatever you think about the parables of Jesus. This one's always been passionate for me because it kind of gives me some energy. Like I see God's intensity. Go and compel them. Verse 23, compel them to come in. You know what compel means? The, the word to literally means to necessitate in front of somebody. Say, this is absolutely necessary. You've got to have this. It means to persuade. It means to convince, to appeal, to influence, to win over, to impress, compel. There's a root word that's, like I said, sometimes translated necessity. Peter, what, Peter did it in a negative way one time. This word is used one time about Peter. when he, Peter had a few slips in his life, even after Pentecost. Peter was kind of playing both sides, playing the Jew came and then playing with Gentiles. And then, you know, um, one time he was eating with Gentiles and, and what, what he was doing was contradicting what the gospel teaches because what he was doing, he was eating with Gentiles and he basically told Gentiles, you know, yeah, it's, you know, it's like Paul says, you don't have to be circumcised to please God and follow the dietary laws. You don't have to do that. But then what happened was, was when certain Judy, there were Judaizers, certain Jews that came from Jerusalem came with him and he separated from the Gentiles. And he's, it's like he was shunning them. He's being a two-faced friend. And he goes over with his Jewish friends and acts Jewish again. Now, what it was doing, it was putting in the mind of these men is, I have to do this now to be a good Christian because they're following Peter. I, I, it's necessary for me to come in and jump in on the Jewish diet and be circumcised and follow the law of Moses like Peter's friends are. And Paul rebuked Peter for doing that maneuver. He says, Peter, you don't do that. <laughs> you're compelling them. You're, you're telling them it's necessary to do what you're doing by your actions. So there's a negative way it compels you. But here we want to use the positive. Hey, here's the supper. I want you to come hear the gospel. You can say come to my church because the church has the gospel. It's a pleasant opportunity. Ultimately, the ultimate supper is Jesus, though. It's not merely the church experience. We're not the end product. Think about this. I want you to think about this. We want to be our church. We want church. I've said this before. What we do, decorations, all that stuff, nice as we can. But it's not, it's not the gospel. <laughs> the gospel is what we're saying. It's spiritual. It's the message. We want to create a venue that's pleasant and decent and undistracting so they can get that supper. Get that spiritual message. 
Some churches that put, I want to impress you, man. Well, then you've made your church the gospel. The gospel is the gospel, not the church. We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, Paul says. We paint the buildings ourselves, but we don't preach us, preach our church. It's the gospel and it's at this church. And so, all right, Jesus says compel. Eric Liddell, I like Eric Liddell. He was, uh, they made the movie Chariots of Fire about him. And there's that famous kind of instrumental music there. Uh, let me read to you something about Eric Liddell. He was the son of Scottish missionaries to China. His parents were missionaries to China. He became uh, Scotland's fastest runner in 1923, and he won the 100-yard race at a AAA championship with 9.7 seconds, a record that stood for the next 35 years. He was a committed Christian, and Liddell often spoke at gospel meetings for the Glasgow Student Evangelical Union during his college years. He qualified for the British track and field team at, in, at, 1924, at the 1924 Olympics in Paris. But because the 100-meter race was held on Sunday, his conviction was that he refused to participate because it was held on Sunday. Even though that was his best race, it was his best distance. Some people said about Eric Liddell that most athletes come to the games desiring to be great and do good. But Eric Liddell came to the Olympic Games desiring to be good and do good. In spite of personal pleas from the royal family itself, and criticism from the British press for letting down his country, he stood by his decision and spent that next Sunday preaching in an evangelical church in Paris. They show a scene of that in um, Chariots of Fire. It's very interesting. The next race that was held, I don't know if it was Monday or Tuesday, but he entered the 400-meter race. That's usually one lap. It is said, and they show this scene in the movie too, that as he headed to the starting block, that a man came up to him, handed him a piece of paper with a Bible quotation on it. The quotation was from 1 Samuel 2.30. Them that honor me will I honor. And that, that encouraged him. He kept that piece of paper. He ran with that piece of paper in his hand. He won, breaking the world record at the time of 47.6 seconds. In 1925, but sports wasn't his main thing. In 1925, Liddell returned to China to preach the gospel. In 1943, he was incarcerated in a Jap. This is during World War II. He was incarcerated in a Japanese prison camp where he died two years later, early. But here's what Liddell said. I want you to hear his quote. He says, "We are everybody. We are all missionaries. Wherever we go, we either bring people nearer to Christ or we repel them." Isn't that interesting? And that's true. I think there's three choices for us. We conceal Him. We compel to Him. Or we repel. <laughs> and he said either we bring people nearer to Christ or we repel them from Christ. One point here. How to be genuinely compelling care. <laughs> I got four more points, but this is the biggest one. Do you see that this guy right here, this man, he cares. He has this big supper. He wants to feed people. He had select people. He already wanted to do it. They said no. He's like, 
Well, I want to feed others. I'll feed the, the limp and the blind and everything else. And I'll feed the ones way out there I've never met. Maybe they're Gentiles. I'll feed them. He cares. Um, we talked about, Adam was saying about uh, the balloon thing with his partner when he was a Bible time evangelist. And I, I have the letter in my file. I haven't brought it, but I thought about it. Uh, Mike Bowie, who was saved in this church, teenager, kid and teenager for a while, and he was in a broken home, moved around a couple places, and I started and pastors a church in Hawaii. Um, he was a Bible time evangelist. I don't know if it was his first or second year, he went to the Philippines. And he said, <laughs> and that's why I said I got his letter. I remember reading this. He said, um, he gets to the Philippines and he's like, I didn't know what to do because you kind of, we have our customary ways of reaching out. You know, we're going to go door knocking, flyers, we'll set up a booth. Well, you know, Adam, they went to a park and just started getting some attention because I didn't know where to start. So it was like a little village. And he had the big ball. All you kids like the big ball? Man, the big ball. It's cool. Yeah. He had the big ball. He's like, I don't know what I'm going to do. How do I start getting all these little Filipino boys and girls? And so he just blew it up. And he said he just started pushing the ball down the, a, pa a pathway of this village. And he's just pushing the ball, pushing the ball around. And there's a kid comes running up to him. Another kid comes running up to him. Another kid's pushing it around. Hey there, you know, talking and pushing around, pushing around. He says by the, I don't know how long it was. He said there was 90 kids that followed him. And that's how he got a rally started. You know, I think it's showing that, hey, I care about you kids. And I know somebody evil can do the same thing. I understand that. But he's trying to do something so he cares. And he said, that was the best time of my life doing that ministry in the Philippines. I told you my father-in-law would tell this example of a man who was a Jehovah's Witness. His name was Ted Dencher. It's, I always remember that name, Ted Dencher. Hmm, interesting. But... He was a very kind of self-righteous, intellectual, smarty-pants Jehovah's Witness guy. Well, two Christian ladies, older Christian ladies, would witness to him. And they would talk to him, and he would come back with his little witty arguments about, you know, this and that, of the, you know, and the Trinity. You just got that doctrine from the Catholics and the, as if they make up all the doctrines that, you know, might all these things. They do make up some, but... He said, you just got that from the Catholics. Like, no, you know the Bible. And so he argued with these ladies and he felt like he had the advantage on arguing about them. And Jesus didn't die on a cross. He died on a stake. And, you know, there's only 145. And, and they're like, no, Ted. And, and so they, are, they, they talked to him about, about just believing on Jesus, the simplicity of Jesus, who's the, who's the God man. He's never created. He's from eternity past, eternity uh, for forever, future. He rose bodily from the grave, and you just believe on him. You don't do anything. You don't contribute. And he kind of would have his points of argument with them. But they showed a lot of love to him. I don't know how. But he said this. By the time he did get saved, he, his testimony was, you know, I could get over their arguments, but I couldn't get over their love. That's what he said. And it kind of melted him. And he truly was converted to Jesus Christ, the gospel of the Bible, the Christ of the Bible. They cared. Um, you know, some of uh, the ladies that came yesterday, you know, maybe a little follow-up call, a follow-up text will help show you care. Um, see another lady again, you know, show you care. 
It helps, it's, it helps us to be compelling. Paul said, by all means, save some. What does it say is the greatest? Is faith, hope, and charity? But the greatest one of these is charity, caring, love, a godlike love. I miss Sister, Sister Ruth. Like, I told my wife yesterday, I said, came home, I was like, man, there was like 20 ladies I'd never seen before. And I said, I think 15 of them came because of Ruth. You know? But, you know, she's just friendly and she cares. I mean, sometimes she'll walk up to me and ask me something, and I'm already saying yes, and I'm like, wait a minute, what? You know, what am I, you know? I mean, she asked me if I want tamales. I'm like, yeah. But, you know, but she'll, she'll witness to some lady at the, there's been goodwill employees come. Maybe there was one yesterday. I kind of lose track. And then she works for Hatch Haven that helps with special needs people. There's some Hatch Haven employees that came. Uh, and the one lady that made a profession of faith, I believe, is from there. Um, and then somebody at the grocery store. Huh, like Fry's. One time I was in Fry's. I saw Ruth there and her friend. Oh, pastor, this is... And she named this lady. Here's this my... I've been trying to get her to come to church. Hey, this is my pastor. She's all smiling and stuff. And I think these ladies come like, hey, she, she cares. And she's pleasant. And she's compelling just with a little bit of care. And I know, I know we have it in us, and some of you are like that now, and some of us just need to revive it a little bit. You need to revive my heart, enlarge my heart, Paul referred to that. And that, you know, having a caring face and a caring tone, that is very compelling. And what are we wanting to do? Compel people to, to come to church, yes. Compel people to come to Christ. Compel kids, teenage friends, come to Bible time. But it's easier to come to something when there's a loving voice calling you, right? Cords of love, he draws us with cords of love. Well, we're going to look at this probably next time. It helps when we communicate in person. Some of this is going to be very practical too. It helps, you know, you got to be convinced of whatever the claims of Christ. Maybe this could have been the first one. It's hard to compel somebody when you're not convinced of what it is. Lost people have preached the gospel and people have been saved. But it could be more effective when they're convinced of it. Eh, it's good to keep yourself decent too. Looking decent, smelling decent. Otherwise, we can repel people from you. And eventually from the message. And keeping facilities decent. We'll talk about stuff like that next time.